We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark today, and if you are a guest with us, welcome. We're glad you're here. We are a church that is built, created by, built, built on, and propelled by the Word of God, uh, and the preaching of His Word and the power of the Spirit as we trust Him to work is really the, the jet engine that powers our church, and um, so we value this. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. It's my privilege to bring you God's Word this morning. Uh, We are going to be in Mark today, then we're going to take a little bit of a break for the Advent season. Uh, Believe it or not, Advent season starts next Sunday. We will have a series uh, for Advent, looking at the traditional Advent themes of hope, peace, joy, and love. And during that time, we will have have an Advent wreath and take time to uh, have some individuals and families read some scripture and light our Advent candle, sing a a Christmas hymn, and then focus on the Word of God and what it teaches us about these key themes that relate to the wonder of Christmas. But we are, for today, continuing our series in Mark. Last week you heard from Pastor Jeff from Mark chapter 7, and we learned that uh, the key truth that it's not what is on the outside that defiles us, but it's what's on the inside, sin, uh, that that is a core truth that we need to grapple with and to run to Jesus for because he offers the true cure. Well, today's passage relates to that. It's, it's the next section in Mark chapter 7, and it actually relates to what we talked about last week. And as we go through this, I believe you'll see how it does relate um, we are transitioning here in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has spent a lot of time around the Sea of Galilee. He's had a very fruitful ministry around that location. Uh, all sorts of miracles, uh, teaching of God's Word to people, and, uh, and great crowds are following him. And now, as the story continues, Jesus' ministry starts to uh, transition to a time where he's actually north and west uh, and, and for a little bit east of that area, but, but northward into an area that was inhabited mostly by non-Jews, what, uh, what we call Gentiles, and actually what we see in our Bibles as Gentiles. The word actually is uh, a, a Hellenist, is really what a more literal translation, but they're, they're non-Jews, they're those influenced by Greek or just non-Jewish culture. So Jesus' ministry is transitioning there, and then later on we're going to see him. He returns for a a time back to his home base and then starts the journey towards Jerusalem and really the the height of the story of the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to look at Mark 7, verses 24 to 30 today. Uh, We're going to learn about some wonderful truths about Jesus and and about God uh, that relates that relate to last week and and also relate to theme today of praying for the persecuted Um, i was very moved uh, as we prayed and as we considered uh, what our brothers and sisters throughout the world face and god's heart for them and it was just appropriate to take time thanksgiving week as we thank god for all that he's done in our lives and does around us to uh, focus on those who are less privileged particularly our brothers and sisters under persecution So this passage today relates to that in God's heart. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his life-giving word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you uh, love to visit with us, to dwell with us, to speak to us. 
that you're present here, O oh God, and you want to work today. And so we ask you, Lord, to come and be in our midst, to have your way. We ask you, Lord, to uh, speak to us through your word. Would you, Lord, use me? I need your help. I want to serve you, Lord, and I want to serve your people and all that are here with your truth. So would you speak to us? Give us ears to hear from you. Change our lives by the power of your word. Through all this, Lord, be glorified. We ask and we expect you because you have revealed that you are a God who speaks and a God who works. Uh, We are waiting on you to speak and to visit us in this time. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's take a look at this section of Scripture uh, as Jesus journeys northward. It says in Mark 7, starting in verse 24, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the little children, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. God's word from Mark chapter 7. This is a really fascinating interaction here as Jesus talks with this woman, this Gentile woman, this Syrophoenician woman. And there's lots of truth packed into this very short passage. And and I want to take time just to kind of walk through these things. There there are three points, three things that we can learn from this section. One is that Jesus is known in the least likely places. Second, that Jesus is not defiled by the least likely people. And third, that Jesus gives the bread of heaven to the least likely people. Really, those three points work together just to create in us an awareness and a thankfulness, I believe, that God reaches out and rescues the least likely. So let's journey through this passage and learn about these three things, and learn about our Lord uh, from Mark seven twenty four to 30. Uh, it says at the beginning that he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So he's been interacting uh, earlier down in the region of Galilee. He's probably mo- most likely in Capernaum. And so last week, as we, as we learned about this interaction with the Pharisees, that was going on in Capernaum. But he goes from that place, he journeys northward. Northward about, I think we have a map to show, northward to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's about 35 miles from uh, the Sea of Galilee. And it's about a two days journey. Now they didn't drive cars, they didn't take airplanes, they didn't even ride donkeys or horses. A lot of times we think they did uh, because we read about donkeys. But donkeys were where you put your your, uh, luggage. You walked with your donkey. So this was a two days journey. Uh, This is a distant land really for them. Uh, you know, what's a two-day's journey for us? That's the other side of the world, isn't it? I mean, basically the, 
the other hemisphere, the eastern hemisphere, is, the, is a two days journey. So think in terms of that. This is kind of the other side of the world for them. It's a totally different culture. It's a different place. Uh, and it's, uh, it's not only a distance of 35 miles geographically, but it's a, a great distance culturally and spiritually. Jesus is going deep into Gentile territory. He's going into a place that is starkly different than Israel. And the people are starkly different. This is a place of spiritual darkness. This is a place where if, if we were defiled by what is outside of us, Jesus and his disciples are going to be thoroughly defiled. This is an area of the Gentiles. And, and, and it's an area, when we say Jew and Gentile, nowadays we, we probably don't grasp how starkly different they were back then. This is an area of ancient Greek culture, which means it's, it's polytheistic. It's, it's um, dissolute in many ways. Now, there are certainly noble things in the culture. There are, there are things in the culture that retain the image of God. It's not as bad as it could be, but it's, a, it's an area that's uh, just dark. Lots of demonic activity, lots of false gods, lots of gross immorality. And certainly not a regard for the God who made the universe, the real, true, and one God, the God of Israel. So Jesus is going into this area. He's going there. We can read elsewhere and learn elsewhere that he's trying to get some relief from the constant pressure of the crowds. He wants to get away to have some retreat time. And he wants to take his disciples away and get away from the crowds. And so he journeys into this area of Tyre and Sidon. And Tyre and Sidon are an area that are really uh, the, the essence. They're really a classic example of the Gentiles. And, and this would have been when, when maybe you would have talked to a Jewish person in the day who lived in Galilee. And if you said, you know, like, what area epitomizes what it is to be a Gentile? They would have said, you know, up in the region of Tyre and Sidon, that area. Those are, those are the people that are are so far from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this story is about Jesus journeying into this area with his disciples and what he encounters. Now, it's here in this book of the Bible because God has purpose in it. There's a lot of things that Jesus did that aren't included in the Gospels. The Gospel of John talks about that. So God is purposeful in what he included, what he saw, uh, sought to be preserved for us. And this story, I believe, is is preserved for us first for the original audience. Mark wrote this gospel for the church in where? Rome. The church in Rome. And so Rome really in many ways is the antithesis, said that three times fast, of Jerusalem. It's the opposite of Jerusalem. It, and, and so this is a story that the church in Rome would have identified with. Just to, They would have been intrigued. Jesus went to this area. And, and, and he had a concern for here. So Jesus goes to this area. This area, uh, there, what has happened is that his fame has gone ahead of him. They know about him. Uh, they, they are uh, aware of him. This is, this is really not a place that you would think, though, would, would care about Jesus. It's an unlikely place. And that's the first point, that, that, that Jesus reaches out to an unlikely place. He's known in unlikely places. And this is part of his plan, part of God's heart. So this is preserved in Scripture 
not just as a story, but to communicate to us ultimately that God cares about the least likely places. And so the original audience, the church in Rome, would have listened and realized God cares about the least likely places. He cares about places like Rome. His plan is not just for Jerusalem and not just for the Jewish people, but beyond it as well. The news has spread. The news has gone beyond Jerusalem to this area. That's an important point. That's an important point, not only for that church in Rome of the day, but for us as well, to recognize that God cares about, cares about what's going on in unlikely places. This is his heart, is to reach unlikely places, to bring the truth of the gospel to unlikely places. And, and it's fitting today, as we talked about parts of the world where there's persecution going on, particularly the part of the world that follows Islam, To realize that God's heart is for those unlikely places. To realize that he's at work, that he goes ahead. That's what happened here in this this section of Scripture. Jesus goes and they go to get relief, but the, the news of God has gone ahead already. People already know about Jesus. And there's... Uh, there's purpose in that. God is sovereign over that. God has worked in a way that the news of Jesus has gone ahead. That's part of the storyline here. And it's encouraging to me, and I hope it's encouraging to you, to recognize that God goes ahead of us to unlikely places to prepare the way. God goes ahead of us to unlikely places to prepare the way. We tend to think of only the likely places, right? We're just gonna, we're gonna go to the likely places. We're gonna go to the places where it's easiest to talk about Jesus, where people have already heard about Jesus. We're not gonna go to the unlikely places. But God goes ahead and prepares the unlikely places. Do you know right now that in the Muslim world that there are many people, thousands of people who God is preparing to hear the gospel, to hear the good news of Christ. We look at the Muslim world and we think, well, that's just, that's the unlikely place. And God's not at work there because they're, they're just the way the society is, they're so close to Christianity. They're so opposed to it. They're persecuting Christians, but God's at work. Dr. Dudley Woodbury, a professor of Islamics, Fulbright scholar, an expert in medieval Arabic literature and uh, did work He did a survey of 750 Muslims who had decided to follow Christ. And there were uh, respondents from 30 countries, 50 ethnic groups. And he did this as part of Fuller Theological Seminary's work. And they interviewed people who had come to Christ from Islam and asked, you know, what went on? What drew you? What attracted you? And they listed different things. And and actually, uh, the article is available online via Christianity Today, published, I think, in 2001. Uh, those results. But among the five different things, and they were things like, you know, just the, the glory of God and Christ revealed in Scripture, the appeal there. But, but the number five, I think it was on the list, was dreams. Isn't that interesting? Dreams. One of the top reasons that they were drawn to Christ was through dreams. And, and this is verified by other work that's been done as well. An article in Missions Frontiers it, about uh, Muslims why they're choosing Jesus, it says, quote, though dreams may play an insignificant role in the conversion decisions of most Westerners, over one-fourth of those surveyed state quite emphatically that dreams and visions were key in drawing them to Christ. Rick Love, uh, director of Frontiers, recognizes this pattern as well, and he writes that just as God used a vision to convert Paul, in like manner he reveals himself to Muslims through dreams and visions, just as he prepared Cornelius 
to hear God through Peter receiving a vision, God is preparing a multitude of Muslims to respond to his good news. And there are all sorts of stories of of people, and, and I could read you the stories where they see Jesus in a dream, and he's telling them to come, that he is the way, come to him. Uh, and, and he appears in dreams, sometimes persistent in dreams. And what typically happens is they start to get curious, uh, and they go talk to a Christian they know, and that Christian says, well, let me tell you about that person in that dream. And they get to share the gospel, and these people are coming to Christ. Carol Sanders, a missionary in South Africa, reported that among African Muslims, 42% of new believers come to Christ through, through the agency of visions and dreams and even angelic appearances. So God is using dreams. It's just wild. He won't be hindered. He won't be hindered to draw those in the least likely places. Now, uh, I could share more of those stories, and I'm not advocating that we somehow, you know, we put our hope in dreams as the way for people to come to Christ. And if you read the stories, you'll see they actually don't come to Christ through the dreams. God uses the dreams to, to pique their interest uh, and, and get them wondering, wow, is God speaking to me? Uh, because in their culture, they wouldn't understand Jesus as the Bible teaches him. But the, the, their interest is piqued, and then they'll go and they'll talk to a Christian and hear the gospel, and they'll come to Christ. There's loads of stories like that. And, and just as in our story where God goes ahead and brings the good news of Christ to an unlikely place, God is at work bringing the good news to unlikely places, preparing people to hear the good news in unlikely places. I think this has application to us, this particular point. And that is this, that, that we not constrict God's activity to only the likely places. That we don't think, well, Lord, you're, you're going to work here, but you're not going to work there. And that we not define our ministry by the likely places. There are likely places for us. There are places that make the most sense, that are most convenient for us to reach out and touch people's lives. And certainly we are to be active in, in loving people in those likely places. But there are unlikely places. So let us not suppose that God's not at work there. What, what are the unlikely places for you? What are the unlikely places in your life where you just look and you think, you know, there's no way God would work there or God's not at work there? Maybe the unlikely place for you is where you're going this Thursday to be with family for Thanksgiving. And you, for years, watched your family not care a lick about spiritual things or the Lord, and, and you're thinking this is the unlikely place. Well, well, don't think that way. God is at work. God can work in that unlikely place. Where are the other unlikely places for you? Is it at work, among neighbors, certain neighbors that come to mind, co-workers, friends, classmates? God loves to work among the unlikely. Let us trust him to do so. Second point, Jesus is not defiled by the least likely people. This This story follows on the heels of the earlier section in Mark, where Jesus takes uh, 23 verses, really. uh, Well, well, God takes 23 verses through Scripture to teach us about this really important principle that we visited last week. Jesus kind of sums it up in verse 15. I think we have this to project. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. This truth that... What defiles someone is not what's on the outside. It's not your 
It's not the behavior of others. It's not ritual things that you do outside. It's not, it's not you know, wearing the right or the wrong clothes or whatever. It's not things on the outside. It's not those other people who are bad people that, you know, I get around them, and every time I get around them, I get defiled. That's not it. That's what Jesus is clearly saying. It's not that. It's what's inside. Inside of you is your worst enemy. Inside of you is sin. Inside of you is this will that wants to do things your way, and you end up, because of what's inside of you, making sinful sinful decisions. And so we need someone to rescue us, to, to work Uh, at the deepest level in our hearts, to rescue us not from what's outside, but what's from inside. That's so important. And and Pastor Jeff did a great job last week. Uh, And I I, uh, mistakenly told everyone to get a copy. Well, not mistakenly, but uh, unfortunately it wasn't recorded uh, last week's message. But we're going to make a time for Pastor Jeff to give that message, I think, at a, a sister church, record it, and get it so it's available to you guys. Because I think it's such an important truth. This week's section relates to that, though, because what's going on here, Jesus gives this teaching that it's not what's outside that defiles you, and then he takes his 12 disciples and goes deep into the place, the heart of the territory that was understood as most defiling to the Jews of the day. And so these disciples are in for quite a ride as they go there. They would have understood that just to be around Gentiles was defiling. As Pastor Jeff said, it's recorded that, that even uh, the shadow, if a shadow of a Gentile passed on your dinner plate, basically, that plate was defiled. It was, it was sinful, and you had to go through a purification process. That's how they understood it. So these guys are going deep into this, this territory where people are defiled. And it's clear from what Mark says that, this, that he's emphasizing this point. He says, Three different ways he makes it clear that they are in Gentile territory. First, it's the region of Tyre and Sidon. They would have known that. Second, it says, now this woman, verse 26, was a Gentile. And then thirdly, a Syrophoenician by birth, which just basically meant she was from that area. So he's emphatic in making it clear that this is a Gentile. And just to cover a little bit of understanding of the Gentiles and, and the relationships between Jews and Gentiles... For the Jewish people of the day, the Gentiles were the enemies. The Gentiles were the people, particularly, I mean, certain regions of the Gentiles who had, who first off were as far from God as you could get. They had rejected God. They had walked away from God. They were doing life on their own. They had declined in their culture. uh, They had had become more and more evil. They did all sorts of terrible things. So these were the people that basically epitomized what it meant to be far from God. Rather than come to the Lord, they had run from him into all sorts of terrible things. So they, that was how they thought of the Gentiles. It's just the godless people. But also, the Gentiles had a history of oppressing the Jews. Uh, they had come, uh, and, and there was a, a Greek general named Antiochus who, had, uh, who basically thought he was God in the flesh. And he had conquered Israel, and he had converted the temple to a temple for Zeus, and he had offered even a pig as a sacrifice on the altar and had slaughtered and tortured you know, thousands and thousands of Jews. And so that was part of the history here too, that they, just, they saw the Gentiles as their enemies. They were far from God. They were their enemies in terms of what they had done. And, and now under Rome, they were seeking to control and rule them again and lead them away from God. So the Gentiles were just, they were despised. They were unclean. 
And yet this didn't stop Jesus, did it? From going into the territory of, of the Gentiles and, and going there, yes, to, to rest, but going there and encountering people who were defiling according to the Jews. But he is not defiled. He understands the teaching that he's brought earlier. It's not what's outside that defiles you. It's what's inside. And Jesus had nothing inside that was defiling. There was no foothold in him. There was no sin within. He was holy. He was God in the flesh. And so he was not defiled by external things. He was pure and holy. And he was able to stand amidst what might have seemed defiling defiling to everyone else and be pure and be unaffected. So this is an important story because it illustrates in many ways the truth that we saw earlier. And it illustrates it in a slightly different way than maybe we would understand the truth. Uh, Verses 1 through 24 talks about it's not the things on the outside, it's what's inside. And that's really important for just understanding who we are as Christians, that sin dwells within as long as we're in this body. And that we need a Savior. That we need to run to the Lord. So there's a personal application that's very important. There's a relational application that's really important, right? So as I relate to others, I don't blame my wife or my kids for my attitude, right? It's not, you didn't make me do this. I did it. You know, it's my sin. Those are important applications. But the application that we see really as this story falls on has to do with how we relate to those who don't know the Lord. Those who don't belong to Jesus. And I would submit that that is one of the areas where we fail in this teaching. We can be very unlike Jesus. We can think that holiness is promoted by staying away from people who don't belong to the Lord. We can think that that to be a true Christian means that I don't spend time around others, that I get away from them that I withdraw, that I live in a bubble. And whether we think that consciously or not, I think often our actions say that's what we're doing. I think it feels very nice to be in your Christian bubble. It feels great to be with other believers. It feels great to be around King of Grace Church because we're not maybe quite as bad as the others out there. This passage of Scripture comes right against that. This isn't what Jesus is like. Jesus doesn't say, I'm just going to stay here. He goes there, and and as he interacts with somebody, we'll we'll take time to dive into the dialogue there. He doesn't just say, well, no, no, no. I'm I'm not going to be involved in your life. You're unclean. He's not defiled. And this is an example to us to be like him. It's an example to the church to be like him and to understand it's not what's outside of you that defiles you. The, The people in the world who act the way they do, do not defile you. Now, there are temptations that are out there, and you have to be sober about your own temptations. So I'm not saying go anywhere out there in the world and do anything. You have to recognize that there might be temptations. But overall, this passage of Scripture and the example of Jesus and the truth of Mark 7 earlier instructs us that our job is to go where people need Jesus and to not think in terms of, I'll be defiled. But that can be our mindset, and I just want to point that out to us so we recognize and maybe think 
about our own lives. Do I think this way? Does that factor in how I relate to those who don't know Jesus? Does that factor in what my expectations are? It's interesting that this story takes place in the days when, when you had in the early church observant Jews, so they were Jewish people who observed the law and were Christians, and you had Gentiles who were Christians who didn't observe. And so this truth of Scripture is going, it's for the church in Rome originally. And this is an issue with them, and, and, I, and I believe it's there in Scripture to instruct them, to say, guys, you don't get defiled by being with Gentiles who don't obey the law. That doesn't defile you. It's the things within. And Christ has come to die the death we deserve, to pay for our sins, so we are forgiven and clean in Him, not in ritual things. It applies to them, and we may think, well, you know, yeah, that was 2,000 years ago. We don't have an issue now with, as much with observant Jews and, and Gentiles, non-Jews, together. It's not an issue for us. And I think overall that's true. But here's what I think the issue is. The issue for us is observant evangelicals and unobservant non-Christians together. And we think, you know, we're going to be defiled by hanging out with them. We're going to be defiled by their ways if we're around them. And then we can put an expectation on people who don't yet know Christ to behave like us. And we get angry and we get frustrated. But it doesn't make any sense. Think about it. If you were to go as a missionary, say you lived back in the 1800s, and you were to go as a missionary to one of the, one of the peoples in the South Pacific that were cannibals, okay? That there's no longer, they no longer exist, but there used to be tribes, groups that were cannibals, and they had just decadent lifestyles. And you went there as a missionary. Would you be there and think, you know what, these people are just so awful, I'm just going to live in my hut here and stay away from them. That's my job. You wouldn't think like that. You're a missionary. You're supposed to go and reach them, right? And you don't have any expectation that they'll stop being cannibals somehow apart from the grace of God. You don't bring to them what you would expect for your own life and, and require them to act like that. So why do we do that among people who don't know Jesus in our culture? Why do we get offended by their behavior? Why do we hold Christian standards over non-Christians? Now, don't get me wrong. God is holy, and they know they have accountability to God. So it, they don't get off the hook. But we often think wrongly about how to relate to those around us. And Jesus gives us this example in this passage that he is not defiled by unlikely people. Neither should we be defiled by being around unlikely people. As a matter of fact, we should go forward and engage such people, and love them in Christ's name, and recognize that our problem isn't their sin making us sin. If we're going to face any temptation among them, it's our own sin within. And if indeed it is a temptation for you, yes, you maybe need to pull back. But it doesn't come from outside. It comes from within. And there's a Savior who's come and died for our sins so we can be freed from those sins. So we needn't be tempted. It's so important to get this. It, it has so many implications. One area I, I... Boy, it's 11.30 already. One area I want to address is just, is just child raising with, in light of this. There's a, there's a right impulse in parents to, to protect our children. And we need to be wise in how we parent our children. We need to, to shelter them from things that they're not ready for. But good parenting is good discipleship. And good discipleship involves teaching our children that their greatest enemy is not 
terrible kids down the street. It's the sin within their hearts. And their problem is not the kid down the street. It's the sin within their hearts. And that there's a Savior who comes to rescue them from the sin within. And he died on the cross to pay for those sins and rose again so that in him we might have forgiveness and power to say no and yes to him. And to teach them to live in that gospel and then as they are ready to start to expose them to the world so they can learn to live in the gospel and bring the gospel to other people. So if we shelter our kids, I think we're actually disobeying God. If we shelter them, then expect them at the age of 18 to somehow know how to deal with sin within and the world, we're, we're foolish. We need to disciple them into this. We need to help them understand these things and, and live out these things. And we need to help them put their hope not in abstaining from being around the sinful world, but their hope in the gospel alone that saves and sanctifies. The good news of Christ alone saves and sets us apart for God. Being set apart for the Lord does not mean being set apart from the world in the terms of not engaging the world. It means being set apart to live in Christ and to live for Him. And if we think that being holy means that we're not around unbelievers, we're, it's quite the opposite. Because who is the most holy one? God Himself. Who is our example of holiness in the flesh? Jesus. And what does holiness look like for Jesus? It means He engages those that would be considered defiling. So holiness, true holiness, results in us engaging and reaching out to the world and to those that seem defiled to us. I hope that makes sense. It's so important to to understand. I haven't even got to the core of the passage. Um, Let me take five minutes, maybe seven minutes, just to Hit on the last point, the dialogue. You're probably wondering, okay, when's he going to get to this dialogue? I mean, Jesus ta- seems to call this woman a dog. I mean, what's, that's heavy. Please don't finish the message without addressing what's going on. Well, the interaction there is somewhat shocking to us. And in our culture, we, you know, the idea of calling someone a dog or something uh, is, is awful. We need to understand some things about the culture and about what's going on to really get to what's going on here. First, You've heard me as a, a explain the reality of the relationship between the Gentiles and the Jews. That it was normal that they would understand the Gentiles as, as dogs versus the children. Now, Jesus uses the word there for dogs as can be used for puppies. So it, it's maybe diminished a little bit, but it's still not a good word, okay? So we don't go that far and say, oh, he calls them puppies. That must mean he loves them. No, he means they're dogs. They're just house dogs. They're puppies. They're dogs that are in the house. And they're maybe not as bad as street dogs, but they're still understood as dogs. That was, under, that was part of the culture, part of the background. A second important point to understand is that, is that in God's plan, his promises fulfilled in Christ. God had made all these promises over time to his people. He made these wonderful promises of, of sending this suffering servant who would come and bear the sins of his people, who would, who would make atonement, and through his death on we know, on the cross, would pay for sins and release us from sin's penalty. And not only do that, but usher in this new kingdom, the, the kingdom of God that would, would bring God's reign of righteousness, goodness, and peace. All these promises were there. And they're fulfilled in Christ. And they're for God's covenant people. So in the New Testament, 
it's said a number of times that the gospel is first for the Jew, then the Gentile. And what does that mean? It means that in God's plan, his plan was to bring the realization of those promises to his promised people, the people he promised to. He didn't necessarily promise to all the Gentiles that you'd get all these covenant promises. He said first to the Jew, and then through the Jews and the early church to the Gentiles as well. So first in line to receive the bread of heaven are the Jews. That's what, that's what this is teaching. That's what Scripture teaches. They're first in line. So Jesus is saying to this woman, they, they, you know, they understood the terms of dogs and children. That was not necessarily a problem for them, though it's a problem for us. Jesus is saying, is it right for me to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? In other words, I have the bread, the bread of God. I am the bread of life, Jesus says, right? I am the bread, and I'm here to give it to the children. They're first in line. That's what he means. And he uses the word first as he says that. Do you see that in the, in the section there? Let the children be fed first. And I think the woman picks up on that. He doesn't say, let the children be fed only. Let the children be fed first. And in some ways, he's provoking this woman because he's God and he knows what's going on in her. And he knows what we need to hear in Scripture. He's, he's aware of all those things, and so this dialogue is with purpose. And he sees genuine faith. And he wants to put on a demonstration through this woman that faith is what matters, ultimately. No matter where you're from, no matter what your background is, no matter how likely or unlikely you are to believe, it's faith that matters. It's, it's not putting your trust in your own heritage or your own actions. It's putting your trust in Jesus alone. And this woman has put her trust in Jesus. And he knows that. So he's pushing her. And he says that to her, knowing that there's faith. And then the best come back in the Bible. She says, yes. Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Yes, Lord, I know I'm not a Jew. I don't have a right to the table. But even the dogs, as you're calling me, under the table eat the crumbs. It's wonderful. It's a, it's a response of faith on her part. And the Lord's response to her is to give her her request. He sees faith. He, he loves her response. And so that instant, the demon is cast out of her daughter. And she goes home and finds his, uh, her daughter cured. I love, I love this passage. I love this interaction. The band could come up as we close. I, I, I love what goes on here. There's lots to learn. One key theme just to close with. I need to adjust my learn how to use this mic. One key theme uh, to close with is just the idea of what this woman exemplifies. She exemplifies faith. She exemplifies humility. They're combined. And I think she's an example to us of faith and humility. As we come to Thanksgiving, it's, it's, I think, appropriate to be in this passage and consider these things. This woman did not make a claim on Jesus. She did not say... You're not being fair, Jesus. They get something. I should get it too. Why is my life not like theirs? She's not making any of those claims. She's saying, I'm a dog. 
under the table, but would you please give me a crumb? Would you please give me a portion of the children's bread? That's her attitude. It's, it's humility. And I think it's instructive to us because, sadly, we are often spoiled children. And we say, God, you need to do it this way. You need to do it in my time frame, in my way, on my terms. And when he doesn't do it on our terms, we complain, right? And we get bitter. But the reality is, guys, speak for myself, I don't deserve the bread. I don't even deserve a crumb. First off, I'm a Gentile. The heritage of my people. Not the promises of God, but an empty way of life handed down from father to father. That's my heritage of my people going back enough. But even more importantly, I'm a sinner. I've rejected God. I've held up my fist at God. I've rebelled against Him. I have no claim on the blessings of God. Yet, through faith, He gives me more than a crumb. He gives me Himself. And I want to be like this woman. I want to be humble and grateful. I want us to be a grateful people. I want us to be a people who are not spoiled children, who insist that God do this or that in our time frame, or or my life look like this or that. But who say, God, you are God. I have no claim on you. But by your mercy in Christ, would you give me the bread of life? And that bread of life is Christ himself. If we have Christ, we need nothing more, ultimately. And that's the instruction here in this scene. John Newton, the, and just in closing, the famous pastor, hymn writer, as he got old, he started to lose his memory continued to pastor for quite a while, and a, a good friend was with him right near the end before he died. And this is what he said. My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I am a great sinner. And that Christ is a great Savior. May this Thanksgiving our hearts be like John Newton. May our hearts be like this Syrophoenician woman who made no claim but received the bread of heaven with gratitude. Let's pray. Lord, would you grant us grace to be like this woman? Would you grant us grace to understand we have no claim in and of ourselves on you, but you have been so good to us and so merciful And we don't deserve it, but you are so loving and we are glad for it. Lord, would you give us hearts to be humble and thankful, to live our lives in light of these things. And then in that understanding, to go from this place in your love, to love others in your name who are just as unlikely as us. We ask in Christ's name.